Well, it's that time again for us to dive into the Word of God, take our Bibles in hand, and uh, pray that the Lord will assist us in our understanding of His Word this morning. I'm very excited to uh, continue on in our study of the book of Galatians, and we are in chapter 2. We're looking at verses 11 to 14, so if you want to find your way there, uh, you can do that now while I uh, just give a, a brief word or two to kind of set the stage for what we need to focus our attention on this morning. Our text, our text presents us this morning with, with one of the, the, the practices of the Christian church that really has, for all practical purposes, vanished in these modern days, and that is the practice of one Christian confronting or rebuking another Christian. And in our day, where everyone is right in his own eyes, and must be recognized as such and respected, the thought of rebuking someone is, well, repulsive. Uh, That's judging. Jesus said we shouldn't judge. Of course, that response is completely false. Jesus doesn't tell us to avoid judging, but rather to avoid judging hypocritically. We must judge sincerely with the best interest of the one we're judging, And not without first, of course, making sure that we judge ourselves and repent of our own sin. The Lord says it this way, first take out the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. But make no mistake, we are to remove the speck in our brother's eye. Jesus also gave us church discipline, as you heard read this morning from our scripture reading in Matthew 18. He outlines for us their steps that we are to take, preserving and widening the boundaries of privacy with each step when repentance is not forthcoming. And until it's time uh, then to tell the church, and the idea of biblical reconciliation demands that the offended rebukes the offender with the hope that the offender will then repent so that the offended can forgive him. Jesus' words exactly are these. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. So uncomfortable were the disciples with this reconciliation process that Jesus gave to them. They responded this way. They said, we don't have enough faith to do this. Do you remember? Increase our faith, he said. To which Jesus explained, there's no such thing as an amount of faith, as if you need more to accomplish a specific command of Scripture. That's totally uh, totally made up. Again, his exact words, if you had the faith the size of a mustard seed, you could tell this mulberry bush, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. No, it's really a matter of obedience, obedience to what God commands. But still, there are those in the church today who push back on Jesus' command and see confrontation and rebuke as, well, detrimental to the unity of a church instead of building up unity. And they argue that it doesn't present a safe place for people to come and experience Jesus, which is kind of a a buzz phrase. They can't come there to be loved by the community. It doesn't communicate that we love them or that they can feel free to be who they are. 
Besides, any visitor, visitor that discovers we practice church discipline here, well, we'll never see them back. Now, those really are poor excuses, and they communicate so much about a leadership of a church who holds to them. They don't take the Word of God seriously. They practice biblical truths selectively. They minister on their own strength. They view, their view of a church or what a church is is unbiblical. And their understanding of what the goal of a church should be is also unbiblical. And the nature of church discipline itself is quite misunderstood. They miss it altogether. Now, part of the problem why modern churches shy away from this very important practice is because of the bad rap, I think, rebuke has gotten over the years in our tolerant society. But we must understand that, as with any practice of the world that has a twin practice in the church, rebuke that the world might practice falls far short of true biblical rebuke. If unbelievers do rebuke, well, it's selfish, and it is not for the best interest of the one being rebuked, nor does it glorify God. We could be sure of that. Now, when Jesus commands us to rebuke the one who sins against us, he wants us really to simply point out specifically to the offender how his actions are not in keeping with his confession, not in line with God's word, harmful to himself and others, and that we're there to help him get it straightened out. And if it helps, you can think of rebuke as correction, which, of course, is just as unpopular today as rebuke. Most don't want to be corrected either, but Jesus gave us the practice of rebuke and confrontation for a sinning brother for at least two good reasons. One is to help the sinning brother out of his sin and to get right with God and the body. But the other is to protect the unity of the body. So rather than tear at the unity of the body, correction and rebuke preserves the unity. And depending on which sin uh, the offender commits, we need to understand that he could do some great harm in the body. Gossip, for example, James says, spreads like a wild fire that's, if it's not quickly doused. Heretical views can also cause quite a bit of damage. And when someone in the church propagates heresy, Paul commands leadership in Titus 1.9, to refute those who contradict sound doctrine. There's a good example of what we're talking about in 2 Timothy chapter 2. In verses 16 to 18, Paul says, But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, claiming that the resurrection has already taken place, and they are jeopardizing the faith of some. Gangrene, it's a disease. It's a deadly disease. It destroys connective tissue in one area of the body due to blood loss, and eventually it eats away bone. It usually takes place in the toes and the feet, and it produces a greenish pustule and inflammation before the skin turns completely black, which is a sign that it's dead. The superating wounds turn into 
a necrosis that gives off a foul odor and, well, if it's not addressed right away, it will spread to other parts of the body. Paul uses this graphic illustration as a way to speak of the detriment of heresy and gossip and worthless chatter and arguments between members in a body that are left unaddressed. If their harmful rhetoric festers, it will start eating away at the health of the body and eventually darken the pleasant atmosphere of any assembly. In a word, it stinks. Now, we've arrived at a place in Paul's letter that may have caught some of you by surprise. It's his rebuke of the Apostle Peter for sinful behavior that, if Paul had left unaddressed, would eventually have destroyed the unity of the church of Antioch. Was it that bad? Oh, yes. As, uh, and as unbelievable as it may seem, it's true, as I hope to prove to you shortly. It's one of the sadder texts in the Bible, but its, it's value to the church is inestimable. If it's one of what I would call a life-saving text. Now, just a quick word about how it fits with the flow of Paul's letter here. We have been listening to Paul's testimony, you remember, since chapter 1. His testimony, and any effective testimony, has three parts to it, you might remember. Uh, what Paul was like before faith in Christ, how Paul came to faith in Christ, and finally, how his life changed after faith in Christ. And that third part included his two trips to Jerusalem, which showed uh, it, it showed that um, the main reason for his going there <clears throat> was to prove or to point out to the apostles that he visited Peter and James and John that his gospel uh, was not received. He received his gospel not from any man but he received it from Jesus Christ, and his apostleship he received from Christ, not from any human agency. So rather, um, Jesus himself, in a revelation, commissioned Paul. Now this morning in Galatians 2, 11 to 14, grammatically speaking, this is not part of his testimony. The testimony is now over. It's completely ended. And this new section... Uh, still supports Paul's apostolic authority as well as the gospel of grace that he's been defending up to this point. Uh, but it's, it's, it's from this passage that we learn the importance of rebuke. And with that said, I might put the main idea of this text this way, and I've published it in your bulletin for, uh, just for your ease of listening. Rebuke immediately and publicly a believer who fears man more than God and puts his lifestyle out of line with the gospel before he eventually destroys the unity of the body. Now, there's a lot there, and uh, we'll have to deal with small sections of it, small one today, small one next week, and a small one the week after in order to finish this and do justice to it. Uh, but we'll begin just with the first truth. And the first truth is much simpler, and it's this. Rebuke the believer who fears man more than God and puts his lifestyle out of line with the gospel. It's in verses 11 to 12. As we come to those two verses, Paul introduces us to an astounding turn of events. 
He confronts Peter to his face because Peter was guilty of sinful behavior that threatened the gospel. This is what he says. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of some men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and separate himself, fearing those from the circumcision. Now let's get some of the background before we get into the particulars of this verse, this text. This whole scene takes place when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch. When would that have been? Well, you remember that Paul made a second visit to Jerusalem 14 years after his first visit. And he had a personal reason for going to that visit. He was to talk to Peter and John and James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, in order to make sure that they were on the same page with him regarding the gospel of grace, his apostolic calling by God to the Gentiles, and the fact that there are some out there that are distorting the gospel. They not only were on the same page, they gave Paul the right hand of fellowship. Paul returned to Antioch only to be sent out shortly after when the Holy Spirit called him and Barnabas through the local elders of that church to missionary work. The duo left on what would become Paul's first missionary journey. It lasted at least a year, a good year. And upon completion, the two returned to Antioch roughly at the same time that Peter got there. Now, why did Peter go there? Well, according to Acts 12, Herod was on the hunt for Peter, personally. So Peter left. His first stop was Caesarea Philippi, and then from there he made his way to Antioch. And it was at that time, during Peter's short stint in Antioch, that Paul opposed him to his face. That's exactly what Paul says. The translation opposed is a good one. The Greek word behind it means to take a position in opposition against someone, to take a stand against another person. Paul stood against Peter's behavior, and Paul told him so to his face. And we're, of course, familiar with that phrase, aren't we? It carried the same force then as it does today. It means to engage in direct confrontation. Now, as I say that, uh, I want to clarify what I just said. Paul didn't imply by his actions to Peter that he strongly disagreed with him. He didn't speak through an intermediary to Peter. And he didn't gossip about it, voicing his opposition to Peter, Peter's behavior to others. No, he had a problem with Peter and what with Peter was doing. And he went directly to Peter and told him to his face in no uncertain terms. And we learn a a valuable lesson from just this initial confrontation. How important it is to always go to the person with whom we may have an issue. Jesus commanded uh, us in Luke 17 verse 3 to confront a sinning brother. That's clear enough. And Paul's actions fall quite in line with that command. It's so often the case, however, that we don't do this. We have this urge to want to talk to five of our closest friends about it. Do you know what Bill said to me? Oh, you won't believe this. I was so offended. 
and then we go on. That, beloved, amounts to gossip, pure and simple, like it or not. To sing someone's praises behind his back is, of course, perfectly fine. But to condemn or criticize him because of an offense, well, that's a no-no. But it is so ingrained, I think, in our culture to do just that, isn't it? If you see another believer in the church carrying on in a way that's not in line with his confession, or if he directly sinned against you, either way, you are responsible to point it out to him and to him alone. Just between the two of you, Jesus says in Matthew 18, 15. No one else should ever know. Boundary of privacy that Jesus himself has established. And if someone must confront someone else, let's say, of the opposite sex, well then, he or she must arrange to do so in a way that obviously avoids the appearance of evil and maintains all propriety, which is doable. But I think Paul gives us a model here. Now maybe you haven't heard a word I've just said about confronting a brother privately because... You're too shocked about the fact that Paul had to confront Peter for sinful behavior that could have ruined the church. How could this be? Two apostles at odds with each other? I, I, I don't understand. What happened? Well, as Paul writes, Peter stood condemned. The idea of condemned here is that Peter was guilty or culpable of a wrongdoing before God. He engaged in some kind of sinful behavior, and Paul called him on it, plain and simple. Verse 12 gives us the specifics. begins with this little word, for, and that provides really the explanation or the reason why Paul confronted Peter. We could translate it either, you see, or simply, this is because. Paul goes on to explain, as, as he goes on to explain it, it seems as though Peter was enjoying fellowship with the body there at Antioch since he had arrived, and that included having table fellowship with Gentile Christians. And this reference here to eating with Gentile believers, I believe, is inclusive of all kinds of meals, from the most casual to the most ceremonial, including the Lord's Supper. Peter was fellowshipping to the fullest with the Gentiles there at Antioch. And at this time, the early church practiced what is called an agape meal. You may have heard of this. It's uh, translated a love feast, which was a, a full meal that the church had, mostly for the sake of poorer members of the body, but it preceded the Lord's Supper. It eventually would go away, and of course just the Lord's Supper remained. But Jude is the only one who mentions this, and he calls it specifically a love feast in verse 12 of his little postcard epistle. Now, however you define it, the bottom line is that Peter enjoyed eating with all the saints at Antioch, both Jews and Gentiles, Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians together the way it should be, which was one of the greatest characteristics of the Antioch church. I think and I think we need to pause and just appreciate the remarkable thing about the Antioch church. It had not only become an anchor church for other churches, it was the first to formally send out missionaries to Gentile regions under the auspices of godly elders, and it was the first to collect a relief fund to support the flagship church in Jerusalem. 
but it, it, it also was characterized by a sweet fellowship and a harmony between Jew and Gentile Christians, something that was actually missing in the Jerusalem church at this point. And we would be right in suspecting that the Antioch church was really a model church and that in, in the way they, they carried on and in, in most respects, which is all the more reason for Paul's rebuke. Getting back to that scene of the crime, Peter enjoyed table fellowship with Gentiles until, Paul says, some men from James came. That changed everything. Now, once they showed up, Peter began to withdraw until he totally separated himself from eating with Gentile believers, eating only with Gentile uh, Jewish believers. Now, the grammar of the verse doesn't show or support an abrupt change by Peter, as if he just stopped cold turkey with the Gentiles, but rather it was a slow, kind of gradual drift away from eating with the Gentile Christians until the separation from them became too obvious. Okay, I get it. So what did he, so, so what did he do that was wrong? Or I should say, what, what caused him to do this, this injustice? Why did he make an about face and stop fellowshipping with Gentile Christians? What made the change for Peter? Well, there are, those are fair questions, and we should answer them. And there can be no question that what we're talking about here is a classic case of fear of man, pure and simple. That's what verse 12 states. Fearing those from the circumcision group. Now, this was not fearing in a sense of giving proper respect. We all know what that means. We all respect others, and we, we, we give them a proper reverential respect, uh, especially depending on their position. Now, this went far beyond that to the extent where Peter allowed himself actually to be ruled by these guys. He feared what they were and said more than who God was and said. Oh, wait a minute. Who were these guys anyway? Well, that's somewhat debated. Scholars are divided down the middle as to their identity. Now, one view sees only one group of men here, the Judaizers, plain and simple, that is to say, the men from James at the beginning at verse 12 and those from the circumcision at the end of verse 12 are really one and the same group. They are those false brothers that Paul mentions back in verse 4 of this chapter and the very same that Luke identifies in Acts 15.1 where he says, Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. If this view is correct, then these men from James were not really sent from James. Paul, is simp Paul simply means that they came from the Jerusalem church of which James was the head or maybe these men even claimed to have been sent by James, but they were only name-dropping to bolster authority that they didn't have. So that's one view. The other view that some reputable scholars hold 
argues that these two references in verse 12 are two different groups of people. The first group were the Jewish Christians from Jerusalem that James really did send to Antioch because word had gotten back to Jerusalem that Peter was enjoying table fellowship with Gentile Christians. Well, would James be against that? Well, he wasn't per se, but he may have been fearful of the repercussions on the churches in Jerusalem and Judea if the zealots found out. Who were the zealots? They're the second group that Paul mentions in verse 12 at the end. The circumcision. They were a radical nationalistic group of Jews who started a movement in Israel to overthrow Rome. And they wanted to claim their independence for Israel. They were not Christians. They were freedom fighters, patriots, nationalists. Now, some, in fact, were so zealous for Israel that they would walk around with daggers under their robes and they would kill anyone that they could who didn't support their cause. They were called the Sakari. According to this second view, the men from James, Christians, came to tell Peter something like this. If the zealots find out that one of the pillars of the Jerusalem church is eating with uncircumcised Gentile Christians who, did, who do not observe the ceremonial laws, of Moses, uh, ceremonial laws of washing before eating, all chances of evangelizing them are gone. Not to mention the lives of the saints there are put in danger. It's difficult to be certain which view is more precise here, since both are factual and make sense. But either one still gets us to the same place. So you really don't have to decide. And that place is this. Peter feared what was illegitimate. He said illegitimate. Yes. Not only is salvation in God's hands, not ours. Just look at Paul to see how God can save the hardest of hearts. But since when should Christians ever be afraid to die for the cause of Christ? Is this not what Jesus meant when he called us to take up our cross and follow him? So Peter's change in lifestyle in Antioch was surely a sinful one that actually distorted the gospel of grace. It argued that Gentile Christians are no more than second-class citizens in the kingdom of God and they will remain that way because they don't obey the law of Moses. But, beloved, there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. As Paul would later say in this letter, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I wonder if you realize just how strong a motivation the fear of man is. It will enslave you to whatever you fear, put you in bondage. This is easy enough, I think, to understand because it's true even for unbelievers in the world. We read in Matthew 14, 5 that Herod actually waited to kill John the Baptist. Why? 
It says, because he feared the crowd who regarded John as a prophet. We read in John 7 of Jews in the marketplace who began to form their opinions about Jesus, but dare not speak openly about him for fear of the Jews. And there's actually a reference in John 21, verses 42 and 43, to some of the leaders of Israel who claimed to believe in Jesus, but when push came to shove, they refused to confess him publicly for fear that the Pharisees would put them out of the synagogues. Do you see how this works? Fear can rule us. And it has ruled us at one time or another in our lives. We've all feared something that actually dictates our way of life to some degree. That's the natural and inescapable outcome. Now let me just say, at the same time, that fear can be a powerful motivating force for good if the fear is legitimate. You wouldn't be surprised to learn that a fear of God would motivate us to live godly, even in the worst and most threatening kind of contexts where godly living is not acceptable to people. We see it even in Peter's own lifelong uh, or his life rather long before he got to Antioch. He and John were arrested a second time for preaching Jesus in Jerusalem. And so the threat was this, stop preaching or we'll beat you and imprison you. And Peter responds in Acts 5 verse 29, do what you must. We must obey God rather than man. Now, since obedience is the outworking of fear of the fear of God, Peter was essentially saying, we must fear God rather than man. And they did. They kept right on preaching in his name. If they had feared man at that very moment, they would have, had, they would have kept silent and never preached in Jerusalem again. You can see that. If you fear man rather than God, you'll give more consideration to what man says than to what God says. It's just that simple. Now, the fear of God is one of those all-encompassing phrases that captures the essence of a right relationship between a believer and the Lord. It means to have a reverential respect for God to the degree that you always find God more important and more valuable than anyone and anything else. That's what it means. Listen to how Jesus describes it in Luke 12, verses 4 and 5. Now I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after has killed someone, has the power to throw that person into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. People of this world who fear God more will have ears to hear the gospel. Actually, the fear of God in the New Testament, as was true in the old, is a synonym for the converted life. Paul couches the salvation of the Corinthians in terms of fearing God, 2 Corinthians 7.15. His affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. And the thief on the cross to Jesus' left side demonstrated that he had been converted right at that very moment 
by displaying a proper fear of God to embrace Christ. He actually uses the words fearing God. Those who have been born again will then go on to consider God's word to be the weightiest and most important in any given situation. The only word, in fact, that really matters when all is said and done. Paul says, so then, my beloved, Philippians 2.12, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So Paul calls Christians to subject themselves to one another out of fear of Christ, Ephesians 5.21. And he tells slaves to obey those who are their human masters in everything with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, Colossians 2. And he urges believers to perfect holiness in the fear of God, 2 Corinthians 7.1. Paul himself, knowing the fear of God, persuades men, 2 Corinthians 5.11. And maybe we have a better insight into why Paul then was not ashamed of the gospel, as it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. He was not afraid to preach. Peter calls Christians to conduct themselves in fear during their time of stay on this earth, 1 Peter 1.17. And in chapter 2.17, he actually commands us, fear the Lord. John says that those who fear the Lord in the latter days are the ones who will glorify his name, Revelation 15. He characterizes the saints two times in Revelation as those who fear God's name. Even the church is characterized by fearing the Lord in Acts 9, verse 31. So the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed peace, and it was being built up. And as it continued in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it kept increasing. God shows his mercy from generation after generation to those who fear him, Luke 1, 5. And Jesus says, everyone who confesses Jesus before people, Jesus will also confess him before his Father in heaven. Remember that, Luke 12, 8. But whoever denies me before people, he says, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. But Peter was found fearing those from the circumcision. Mere men whom Paul himself had been fighting for a while. False brothers who went around pretending to be sent from James. Yet as the Jerusalem council put it in their letter to the churches eventually, we gave no instruction to those who have confused you by their teaching and upset your souls. These men in some way struck Peter with fear, so that he capitulated to their way of thinking at that very moment. Now, to fully appreciate the impact that the fear of man can have, you need to understand how far Peter had come in his understanding of the life of faith under the New Covenant and his relationship with Gentile believers. It wasn't long after Pentecost that Peter preached with John in Samaria, which would have been a huge challenge for Peter since Jews and Samaritans were sworn enemies of each other. The Jerusalem church sent Peter and John there who laid hands on the Samaritans, and when they had received the Holy Spirit, they identified with them as genuine brothers in Christ. Peter was now ready 
for the next segment of his life, which was to witness God bringing about revival in another ethnic group, the Gentiles. Peter's first encounter evangelizing Gentiles was in Caesarea Philippi, where the Holy Spirit told him to speak to Cornelius the Centurion, a guard of the Italian regiment. Luke tells us in Acts 10 that just prior to this prompting of the Holy Spirit, God gave Peter a vision of a sheet containing animals and other creatures that the Torah strictly forbade any Jew to eat under the Old Covenant. But now, in the New Covenant era, Christ fulfilled the law and abolished all dietary restrictions. I have to pause here for a just a moment, I'm sure you, you may have heard a lot of these, uh, these newfangled diets that, uh, that even come from Christian corners, you know, that this diet, that diet, the hallelujah diet, and all this kind of stuff. And I just think, you know, I just follow Acts 10. Sheet comes down, I eat everything. <laughs> and that's what he told Peter to do. Now, God tells Peter to eat from it, explaining that he has now deemed what was once unholy to be holy in his new covenant. And by the way, he wasn't talking about food. More on that in a second. This happened to condition Peter to meet Cornelius. And when he got to Cornelius' house, the first thing he said to him was, you know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner, but God has shown me that I must not call any person impure or unclean. He got it. And after Cornelius explained to Peter that God had also instructed him in a vision to send for Peter and to listen to every word of Peter's message, Peter responds in Acts 10, 34 to 36 in a remarkable way. He says, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality because in every nation the one who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And we know the rest. He preached and Cornelius and his house full of guests believed. Then in Acts 11, we read that Peter returned to Jerusalem and some of the Jew Jewish Christians there confronted him about his time spent with Gentiles in a Gentile household eating. Now the apostles and the brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came to Jerusalem, the Jewish believers took issue with him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? Peter responds by explaining in detail the revelations that God gave both him and Cornelius, and that Cornelius and his friends received the Holy Spirit. And Luke tells us that, that when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well, then, God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. How about that? Are we at all surprised to find Peter at Antioch enjoying table fellowship with Gentile Christians? Absolutely not. No surprise at all. Knowing what Peter has been through and learned and experienced, we would expect it. What is very unexpected and quite surprising is that Peter would have withdrawn and separated himself from Gentile believers. But this is the powerful effect that fear of man can have on any unsuspecting Christian. Beloved, you need to be alert. 
We don't know what Peter feared about these guys. Some suggest that he was fearful that they might kill him. But he had stood up to the Sanhedrin, who actually had the power to execute people. Others said that he was concerned that he would lose his standing as one of the pillars of the Jerusalem church. But he hadn't when he was with Cornelius at Caesarea Philippi and easily educated those Jewish Christians back home who interrogated him. In fact, he won them over, and they all praised God together. So who can say what was going on in Peter's heart? We just don't know enough data there. Maybe it was just too much all at once. What, what we do know for sure is that at this very time, Peter feared man more than God. And that's all we need to know. He considered how they regarded him as more important than how God regarded him and consequently sinned by withdrawing from Gentile brothers. And that's a shame. But it happens. Well, we have to consider still the consequences of such a sinful lifestyle when it is left undressed in verse 13 and also the nature of our rebuke in verse 14. But we'll have to wait next time because our time is nearly gone. But I want to conclude by saying that any believer can fear man to such a degree that he will fear them more than God. And at that point, he is guilty before God in his heart. That is a a sin of the heart, which will surely lead to sin in the hands. And I mean by that his behavior, his lifestyle will become sinful. It could manifest in a sudden bad decision or gradually in a series of sinful behavior, as was true of Peter as his life is at that moment then out of line with the gospel, his lifestyle cannot but distort the gospel. Because it's not in keeping with gospel living. To say it another way, he's not at that moment a good advertisement for the gospel. Let's hope he doesn't tell anyone. The godly and most loving response then to a Christian in this situation, in sin is to point it out to him with a view to help him get back on track. Paul will say, will say this in, later in, in Galatians 6, verse 1. Those who are spiritual, come alongside and restore the one who is caught in sin gently. That is the godly and most loving thing that you can do, whether they think so or not. We can be sure that Paul's rebuke was not motivated by the desire to be right or because he just loved to rebuke people, but for the preservation of the truth of the gospel, for the unity of the church, and for Peter's sanctification. Peter, on the other hand, was motivated for selfish ends, no question. Also, in addition to the importance of rebuke in the household of God, we might also see that salvation is more than believing the gospel. Do you understand that? It's more than believing the gospel. That we have no record of Peter's repentance for this act. We do know that he will go on to agree with Paul over the same issue at the Jerusalem Council 
He'll go on to write two epistles that promote unity of both Jew and Gentile, and he will become known as a champion of this unity in Christ. But we don't always see this kind of repentance. And we don't need to press the issue with sinful brothers, or I should say we do need to press the issue with sinful brothers when we don't see repentance, even if it means gradually treating them like unbelievers and removing them from membership as Jesus would have us to do in Matthew 18 as the completion of church discipline. The hope then is that they repent. I like the insight that Jim Boyce pulls from Peter's sinful act in this regard. Let it be our closing words this morning. He says, quote, It is not enough merely to understand and accept the gospel, as Peter did, nor even to defend it, as he did at Jerusalem. A Christian must also practice the gospel consistently, allowing it to regulate all areas of his conduct. End quote.